The next session we hope is going to be as stimulating as the last one on blockchain. This is the telehealth policy debate. And uh, Bill Baker has once again got the job of moderating, so uh, I know that he can handle the clock without any problems. We'd like to welcome David Gruber, who's a medical doctor, Michael Guzman, a PhD, Richard Heinzel, MD, PhD. MPH and Richard Migliori, another doctor, to talk about is there a greater financial health in, in financial value in telehealth to the consumers or the providers? Gentlemen, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Richard. The, the clock is always an interesting part to me. Um, years ago, I was doing a debate with Kofi Annan, and I was the timer for the debate and had to uh, cut off. Uh, Kofi, he, he reminded me what his position was, and I said, but I'm responsible to a higher authority. And uh, so we'll make sure that things stay on time and that we move forward. Uh, as we did with the last debate, uh, we'll begin this debate uh, with the first affirmative uh, opening presentation for eight minutes. And I'll be glad to take that. Uh, I'm Dick Migliori, the Chief Medical Officer, United Health Group, and we feel strongly that the resolution is correct, and we affirm it. Uh, and this evidence, particularly as it, that the consumer is favorably affected financially by telehealth, is indisputable. And in fact, it, evidence became on very early in the product cycle and its adoption. That evidence is measurable, and I'll share some of that with you. The other thing we weren't anticipating were the halo benefits that come about as a result of doing this. First off, this is the lowest price for an individual to see a physician, to be able to engage a physician for $40 is not something you can do elsewhere within the health system, at least with any reliability, knowing that you're seeing somebody with a real license on the other end. The second is you get expert triage from this engagement. You have a licensed and boarded physician helping you to decide between self-care or care at a higher level of acuity. That is very economically important to individuals who have to consider what they will be paying out of pocket and to have somebody that can appropriately direct them to the appropriate level of care is considered precious by people who use this system rather than blindly taking a guess at it themselves. Third is its convenience. But even there with the convenience, there's economic reward. Why? Because if I take care of something here and now, I don't have to arrange for daycare. I don't have to uh, surrender one of my paid days off I don't have to arrange potentially for emergency transportation. I get ready advice here and now and in my pajamas. The other element is greater access. Consider this. In the United States right now, as suggested by the American Academy of Medical Colleges, we are some 45,000 primary care physicians short of our needs. There is a deficit. 
By having this, we can fill much of that gap. And it's available, 24 by 7. And it also comes in terms of access as a safe way to explore how bad your problem is. Because for 40 bucks, you don't have to make the big bet on the table that this is an emergency room visit with hundreds, if not thousands of dollars out of your pocket, leading many people to avoid seeking care until things are too late. Ultimately, it's about satisfaction. And I'm not talking about the are you satisfied type questions that routinely generate greater than 95% satisfaction in these systems. It's the kind of satisfaction that's measured by the question, would you recommend to others to use it? It's called net promoter score. That increases 5%. And imagine a health insurance company getting that kicker in terms of referability from its users by making this available. In fact, one out of six people will leave their current physician if they feel they can get telemedicine from another. The evidence I'm putting in front of you is empiric. We undertook a study last year, which is just some 18 months out since the initiation of this virtual visit program we call, where people using secure telecommunications can visit with the physician to get the advice they need. We looked at upper respiratory tract infections in the fourth quarter. Characteristically, in the population that we examined, there would be about a quarter million visits somewhere in the health system to address upper respiratory tract infections. What we saw with the introduction was an expansion to, by 45%, 45% more people sought care. The other thing is for the other 55% of the users of these virtual visits, they were relocated from higher levels of care, including the emergency room, the doctor's office, and the urgent care center. So we show a shift of care-seeking behavior. What was interesting about that was Despite the fact we had more people going, we actually had a total cost reduction on behalf of these consumers in their cost of care. Some $44 per patient who use virtual health. A reduction in cost of that much. What it rolled up for the system, however, was even more amazing. It was $17 million of savings on 300,000 visits. So think about this in closing. Telehealth has been shown to first, serve more people. Second, to lower consumer cost. Third, to more appropriately shift care from a higher acuity environment to something that's less. And then finally, to also generate system savings. More people served higher quality, lower cost, more readily. You're not going to beat that. I'll close with saying that the rest of the resolution about the physician is just too early to tell. 
Telemedicine right now is less than 2% of the 1 billion visits that will occur this year in the physician's office. Mm -hmm. All right? It's not meaningful enough to be able to measure its impact. But with the advancement of value-based payment and ACOs and sharing risk and sharing reward, this has natural incentives to the doc to help the patient make the right decisions, particularly in the middle of the night when things look scary. <laughs> Thank you very much. Good job. Great. As a reminder for those who walked in a little bit late, uh, please uh, set your uh, cell phones and things on vibrate. And the speakers in today's debate uh, did not have choice of sides. And so uh, the viewpoints expressed uh, may not be consistent with their uh, actual uh, practices, regardless of the level of passion that they express with those. <laughs> so uh, we, will... we did take acting lessons. <laughs> uh, so we will now proceed with four minutes of cross-examination by the negative team. Well, uh, first, thanks very much. I mean, we would largely agree with, with uh, a number of the points that you made about the benefits to consumers. Uh, and I think the affirmative team has done a good job of, of explaining how telehealth has the potential uh, for improving access, providing expert advice, uh, convenience, uh, and representing an affordable uh, action. But, but the question that we're debating is whether or not there is greater financial value to consumers than there are to providers. And as my uh, colleague will, will make the point in a few minutes, uh, it isn't clear that, that, that uh, consumers have greater financial value. In fact, we think there is clear that providers have much greater financial value. And I would just point out a couple of issues with regard to the argument about access and convenience of telehealth compared with a traditional office visit. And the first one is this is a very good argument, but it feels a bit dated given the kind of revolution that we're seeing within the marketplace. It isn't a choice between going to an office visit, a traditional office visit, and a telehealth visit, but now consumers have this proliferation of options with CVS and Walmart uh, and other retailers getting into the marketplace and offering other lower cost convenient options. Uh, even traditional providers are now trying to expand their business uh, and are trying to make uh, hours available, sort of after hours available visits so people can get in because they're feared, uh, they're afraid of losing market share. Uh, and so this is important. The other issue that comes up is consumer receptivity. Uh, you talked about the percentage of consumers that would prefer a telehealth visit, but if you dig a little bit deeper into the numbers, you see, among other things, a generational divide. About a third of millennials are enthusiastic about telemedicine, uh, but fewer than 15% of uh, older people are interested in telemedicine visits. And of course, these are going to be the, some of the greatest uh, users of healthcare services. And so from the consumer-driven point of view, you have a limitation in terms of the use of this. So Michael, let me jump in there and get them to respond to either of those issues. Sure. Uh, so the two questions on the table are first, how does the emergence of so many new retailers impact upon uh, the relevance of our assessment in terms of consumers. And the second one is, how does the age difference uh, uh, affect both consumer, re uh, uh, consumer response and the way in which that plays out? Well, I think those are both uh, fine questions. But I want you to put yourselves in the shoes or the pajamas 
of the consumer at two in the morning. Try to find that walk-in minute clinic or take care clinic or a variety of other retail-based options that are there. It doesn't happen. Not at that time when things are scary. And by the way, you gotta be at work in six hours. What are you gonna do? Do you call in sick? Do you put that project on hold? Or can you get something solved? Having this round the clock is there. Second, price point. Price point <coughs> is set to match those other options, which are very good options. But to the value of being able to get immediate attention from the dock in the night, that may even be that tomorrow morning when you wake up, please go to Minute Clinic. That's a lot of emphasis for a guy who's a surgeon and wore a mask all the time. Uh, and his client was always asleep, and I hope I'm not having the same impact on you. Uh, it's, it, as, we, as we start looking at these options, you start realizing availability is big. Second point, adaptability. We don't know where adaptability is going in turn, excuse me, adoption rates. Because let me tell you, you know, we said the same thing about cell phones and the older generation. That's right. The impulse to want to stay at home and maintain your independence as you get older is a driving force. Watch my mother and Peapod. You'll be impressed. We'll now begin the negative presentation for eight minutes. Okay, so what I'm going to focus in on are the provider opportunities. And we believe, again, the value proposition that the opportunity for the providers are far greater than that for the consumers. Um, we do have a longer time frame in that regard. And, and why is that? First off, I wanted to find what telehealth is. It's an enabling tool. Like most technologies, there are not solutions as an independent entity. And what we need is um, a care delivery transformation. Healthcare is unaffordable, it's inefficient, and it's ineffective relative to the capital deployed. So what are the opportunities from the provider standpoint? Three big buckets. One is the opportunities to increase care delivery efficiency, and by that I mean productivity and leveraging resources, and effectiveness. How do we bring more brain power to the patient remotely? And that would include applications, what we call B2B, in terms of a physician, a specialist consulting with a primary care physician or a hospitalist, bringing expertise the PCP does not have. We talk about remote patient diagnostics management, to a lesser extent, procedures. We see that today in terms of radiology, imaging studies. We see that today in terms of the ICU. And potentially, we'll see that with robotics and remote intervention being led by physicians. Um, in that regard. We also have staff fractionation today. So there are opportunities if, if, from a staffing standpoint, you may need half an ED doc, or if the site uh, ED is overwhelmed, you have staff available for you to deal with those acute problems. In home care, there are companies working on home care in terms of remotely managing patients better. You can look at the wound. You could also do electronic, take, apply electronic instruments, hear the heart, hear the lung, and the like. It's also used for other efficiencies as well in terms of case reviews, medical education, and the like. Secondly, we'd like to introduce the concept of access, stepped care access. And I think that's what we're really talking about here. We do remote triage, right? Does the patient have to come in? Well, you do a phone call. You have the 24-7 nurse hotline. 
if it's over the skill set of the nurse, you might bring in the doctor. And what you could do is say, come in or not. And at what time? And do you go to the ED or do you go to, the, to, the, uh, to, to get admitted into the hospital? And lastly, the big opportunity that I think Dr. Migliori was referring to is chronic care. Huge unmet need in terms of we do it today, in terms of case management, care coordination, but then also what's important is self-management. That is much different than just access because you have to create a framework for the patient to be engaged by the institution as well as the patient, requires a certain amount of knowledge, may incorporate the caregiver as well. So that's something we'll come back to. In terms of the drivers, in, in terms of, you know, we need catalysts for change. It's not happening. It's happening in pilot basis. It's happening in small scale. And to change healthcare, we need broader applications. The problem is our healthcare delivery system. We're transactional. We're volume oriented. We're fee for service oriented. We're acute care driven. We're disease centric. The future, which will be value driven, is more oriented towards the total cost of care. How do we manage patients? How do we reduce the utilization of high cost resources, high cost facilities? And we gotta be patient centric. We can't just treat individual diseases. We gotta treat the comorbidities associated with that patient. And those comorbidities could be physical, they could be mental, they could also be psychosocial, looking at some of the social determinants in that regard. Next slide. And here's the bottom line for you. Healthcare today, $3.7 trillion, going to $5.7 trillion by 2026. $2 trillion, 5.5% compound annual growth rate. The system's failing, it's unaffordable. We've tried lots of technologies. I was involved in wireless health years ago. Again, getting the consumer engaged. And again, there are applications, but it's not happening. And somehow we have to break that cost curve. The other piece of it is looking at population growth. And we talk about chronic disease. And I would argue today that consumer-driven um, telehealth has limitations in chronic disease for a number of reasons. And all you have to know by looking at the chart is that the greater than 65 population is exploding. That's the baby boomers. That's probably a third of us in the room. Um, and more significant than that, it's not the 65-year-olds. You have three cohorts, 65, 74, 75, 84, 85 plus. It's the 75 to 84 cohort that's growing more rapidly than all the rest. <coughs> the cost of Medicare goes from 7,700 to 12,2 in that period of time. It's exploded. We have a shortage of primary cares, as Dr. Migliori has mentioned. The question is, what do we do? How do we better manage it? We have to re-engineer the entire process. And then lastly, I want to focus in on, if we're going to have change in healthcare, we need to focus the resources. There's an incredible amount of messaging. There's an incredible amount of activity out there. But are we truly moving forward? And what we need to do is focus on the 5 to 10% of people who account for 43 to 68% of costs. What we don't need to do is focus as much on the 50% of people who account for 3% of costs. And I would argue that telehealth today, from the consumer perspective, focuses on simple, non-complex conditions that is being used by those 50% who account for minimal cost. Thank you, David. We'll now have questions for four minutes from the affirmative team. Uh, I'd like to take the first question and have my colleague take the second. For, for my question is, is, why is it that telehealth remains unable or poorly positioned to solve the needs 
of someone with chronic care, as you describe, when in fact what you're doing is providing an opportunity to have somebody with an exacerbation of their problem to get face-to-face -face with the physician who can help them interpret whether that is a progression problem or a new acute problem or something that needs immediate attention. Particularly knowing, as I know you do, that prompt action in the face of these acute exacerbations of chronic disease is the best way of heading off progression, whether you're in that top, you know, 5% of the population that's going to drive 45% of, of future costs. Go ahead. Look, sure. I'll just say something quickly, and I'll turn it over to David to, to follow up. But I think part of the issue, and it's something you referred to in, in your initial uh, remarks, is that in some ways, it's not that telehealth doesn't add value, but it's a so, sort of a self-limiting technology, if you will. It can be helpful, particularly at 2 in the morning, for some initial diagnosis. But in most cases and for most conditions, it's going to require follow-up. It's going to refer, um, you know, require a referral. And therefore, it can be used in combination with an in, uh, inpatient, you know, in-office uh, visit or, or some other technology. Or it can be used, and address this as well, with in-home monitoring. For the 22,000 elderly patients we have with Bluetooth scales in our home looking for evidence of cardiac decompensation for their heart failure by being able to look on a day-to-day -day basis, first, whether they were weighing themselves, and second, whether they're acquiring body water. Isn't that within your definition? Of, because that's been associated with the 27% decrease in avoidable hospitalizations. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, it, very good points, um, but, but I think, again, we have to see the realities of where care is today, care delivery. There's people process technology. We're grossly inefficient across the board. It's a care delivery issue. It's not hanging out here, right? And, and how do we fundamentally change the behaviors of both physicians as well as systems that are, have embedded inefficiency? So the actuarial models we use today have embedded inefficiencies in them. And the question is, how do we make it better? Why does that apply today? Number one is these are patients, chronic disease, multiple comorbidities. You know, and I'm not talking about the comorbidities in terms of hypertension and high cholesterol. I'm talking about potentially you got the, you know, the heart failure, you got the diabetes, you have the chronic kidney disease. You know, so they're complex patients for which a physician needs to understand and have perspective. You know, number two, in terms of the consumer engagement side, um, again, it's much different when you have a sore throat. A lot of these patients tend to be older, um, they're not knowledgeable of the condition. Self-management today, as we do it, is not working. And there are opportunities, and we know it. We're just not there yet. Number three is, in telehealth and the consumer side of things, you have a different physician. How could a physician treat grandma, who knows, and he knows nothing about grandma, does not know the history, does not know the labs? What may be abnormal for grandma is maybe abnormal in terms of standard labs to a healthy person, but that's her steady state. You know, she has some heart failure. You know, number four is you may need a physical exam. You know, you need the electronic stethoscope. You want to listen. Um, and then lastly, it's about the care team, the case management, and the exchange of information. Thank you. We didn't uh, get to Richard's question, but uh, he'll be our next speaker for the affirmative, so maybe he'll incorporate it into that presentation. Um, second affirmative response uh, for four minutes. 
Thank you very much, Will. Maybe I'll put that question in. Um, and um, I, I want to reiterate and underline what my colleague ha Richard has uh, presented in his opening remarks. And I appreciate what Dr. Gruber said about we have to put the patient first. We have to make this patient-centric. Um, this is an unstoppable trend of digitization in our world. Um, it is not that telehealth has arrived and it's going to be static. It's going to keep improving. And it's going to be incredible what we see in the next 5, 10, 20 years. It'll become much more sophisticated. People in general are more sophisticated now. Gone are the days where a patient would go up to a doctor and say, tell me what to do, and I will do it, doctor, and no question. They're coming oftentimes more prepared than us physicians. And uh, that is, on the one hand, something to be uh, intimidated by. But on the other hand, it's, it's an opportunity. Um, I don't think we should hesitate to empower patients in any way. I think that um, there maybe is a small prejudice against patients and worrying that if we give them this power or these opportunities to participate in, in digital health, that they might not do it right. But we're not seeing that. We're seeing that um, the increasing sophistication, again, is unstoppable, and it, it speaks to tremendous opportunity in the future. Um, uh, the beautiful thing about digitization is it makes it makes geography disappear, uh, where you have access issues, where you have uh, trouble getting to a subspecialist, uh, where you have troubles seeing people in a timely fashion. Telehealth can solve all of that. <clears throat> and I would argue, too, that telehealth is not, uh, doesn't need to be seen as a, an end to itself. It's part of a continuum of digitization. And I think we're going to see opportunities where it can seamlessly integrate with higher orders of medicine, if you will, with more specialty-based kind of involvements. And when we're talking about chronic disease, um, and we talk about your point of the 3% of people costing 50% of the healthcare budget, this is very true. This is the nature of medicine. Uh, but um, I think within that, it, because this is a problem, because we have to address it financially, as well as in terms of improving services, we have an opportunity here to lay into that with some telehealth capabilities to do part of that work that is currently being done perhaps inefficiently or is missing opportunities. If you think about what telehealth can bring, I often say that 98% of what goes on with people's health can be digitized. Um, and that's um, true even of, of um, more subtle areas like psychiatry. Telepsychiatry is coming along where uh, uh, it takes many, many weeks or months in certain places in this country and other countries to see uh, a psychiatrist. Well, this can be delivered very promptly, and um, to see a psychiatrist is one thing. To see an adolescent psychiatrist or a pediatric psychiatrist may double your time. These kinds of things can be delivered now. And when you look at the trends, I mean, I remember my grandmother uh, not wanting to, you know, wanted to handwrite her letters, and she overnight started doing emails. I think that, that these, these digitization features are going to be adopted, and there's not a problem. But it is true, millennials are going to adopt this hugely. This is all they will want in the future, so we have this trend on our side. And um, when you think about mental health, 70% of millennials are at risk for mental health problems. Uh, they trust this way of engaging with people. They don't want to go in front of somebody, drive across town and sit in front of a psychiatrist when they can engage with even an avatar who uses AI-based systems to be able to diagnose psychoses now even better than psychiatrists and detect suicidality better than therapists. So these are just a couple points of the uh, tremendous opportunities that are in front of us, um, and we should embrace them.
will now have cross-examination by the negative for two minutes. Take it away. Well, I, listen, I, I think we are largely in agreement on some of the substantive points. First of all, I want to concede the fact that I think behavioral health is a tremendous opportunity within this. Um, even still, I think part of the issue in terms of the financial value and where it is today uh, is a timing issue right now. I still think there are issues of both uh, reimbursement and licensure, which are problematic from state to state with regard to the use of telehealth. Um, uh, within even behavioral health. But, but I think as you have pointed out, I mean, one of the big issues here is that it's one piece of what we're calling a sort of stepped care approach. There are instances, and I think behavioral health is a good one, where uh, pretty much all of the care can be provided through telehealth. But in almost all of the cases, particularly the ones that are very high cost, you're talking about this being one piece of a triage, which then gets you into in-person care. Um, so can either of you all kind of talk about that? Obviously, there are, uh, in theory, problems associated with that. But would that be something that the affirmative would be willing to concede? I mean, I would concede that um, telehealth and digital health care is not a panacea. And there's going to be bumps in the road as we, um, as we go into the future. Um, but I would say that um, of three groups I would look at, physicians, patients themselves, and digital technology, Physicians like myself are the worst at changing, and they don't want to change for very good reasons. They have lawyers looking at the work they're doing, they have colleges telling them what standard of care is, and they're just comfortable doing what they've always done. So it's very hard for physicians to change their behavior. It's much easier for, I think, uh, the general public to change their behavior. Look at how they adopt Amazon and everything else they do online now when they didn't do that before. And of course, digital electrons can change uh, in an instant, and anything is possible. May I add to that? I don't know if this violates rules, but everything no. violates rules. But you can add to it. <laughs> uh, there's a, the, 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 there is a notion where we start shying away from change when it can't solve every problem. But the fact is that the addition of this form of access can alleviate burdens on the other part of the system. You're right. If somebody, I'm a kidney transplant surgeon. I can't do that with telemedicine. <laughs> But I can certainly help somebody recognize that they need to have renal replacement therapy either way and coach them into transplantation. The part that we have to recognize that, even, that number one, there are capabilities around sharing and capturing that data and putting it on the primary care doc's desk so that middle of the night phone call is well documented, if not even recorded. The second thing is by taking some of these lower acuity problems out of the physician's office, that gives the physician more time to deal with that half, that 5% that really need to have hands-on. So with that, I'm going to turn things over to the negative uh, for their four-minute negative response. Well, well, thank you. And I'll just take a couple minutes and turn it over to David, but I want to finish up on that last point because I think you're actually making our argument with regard to the greater value for physicians. You, you mentioned that physicians are reluctant to change, but I see a lot of opportunity and actually embrace in some of the work that we've done on physician to physician, clinician to clinician use of these kinds of technologies actually in terms of consultation. 
freeing up the time of the physician because of the ease with which you can uh, address certain issues and make certain referrals, again, the benefit is accruing to the provider groups and to the payers at least as much, and we would argue more, than it is to the consumers. David. Yeah, I'd also like to add that there's theory and practice with digitization. And if you look at digital health as a tool, there are about 850,000 mobile apps. There are only a handful that have more than 50,000 users. I was involved in wireless health 10, 15 years ago. So we've been there, we've done that. I think what's important here is it's about people, process, and technology. And healthcare is broke from the process standpoint. We put these band-aids without necessarily changing the processes per se, which are the fundamental core issues. What I'd like to do is the resolve that we're debating today is that there's greater financial value in telehealth for consumers than providers. And we believe it's quite the opposite. And for a number of reasons, one in terms of market potential, far greater, right? We're hitting up the chronic disease, the higher cost patients, their opportunities. Two is in terms of the clinical indications. The consumer telehealth is more self-limited conditions, we're looking at more chronic conditions. Number three is the value proposition. Our healthcare system is broke. Fee-for-service is broke. Lots of people making lots of money, and the costs keep going up and up and up. Just remember the 3-7 trillion going to 5-7 within nine years, and you don't have to know much more than that. We need a different system. We need to look at the total cost of care. Technology is an enabler. Number four is it's going to take us longer time to get there. The catalyst will be the transformation to value. Five, you need continuity of care. How do you manage patients? You can't do it incidentally or episodically. It needs to be integrated with care pathways. There are technology requirements, there are barriers, but the investments have to be made. But what we need is good leadership. We need to change things. These are all Band-Aids. And lastly, what's the impact on healthcare expenditures? Far greater. So our belief is that there is greater financial value in telehealth for providers than consumers. We'll now have the affirmative cross-examine and ask questions to the negative for two minutes. I think those are all very solid arguments, but wouldn't you agree that the issue about what you're <coughs> describing requires adoption of both two things? Number one, the technology to offer this, and second, the acceptance of a, a reimbursement model on their part that rewards them for doing this rather than cut their, their, their you know, nose off to spite their face in terms of you know, a physician losing out on the revenue for the office visit. If, you, if, you, if they're on a value-based contract, they actually get rewarded for doing this. And while I, I absolutely agree with you on that, the issue comes about is that they're gonna to have to be more willing to adopt it. There's great progress being made towards that end. We encourage it. But don't you agree that the risk of adoption is something that we have to figure out? Absolutely. We need the technology. We need reimbursement. The fundamental issue is change management. And what we don't have today is the leadership that we need to do that. So if you're a hospital CEO or a health system CEO, you know, the objective here is, is profitability. We're still not in the, the patient-centric care and all that other stuff that we need to do going forward. That's the fundamental flaw of where we are. And, and we, we believe that total cost of care reimbursement, value-based reimbursement, you know, will get us there. Telehealth is a tool. It's not the solution, right. but it's one of many different tools. 
And the question is, how do you integrate them in a seamless manner, and how do you convert so there's an alignment of the interests, so the insurance companies are aligned with the providers. You know, the pie is, is, is not going to grow much, and the question is, who gets the pieces of the pie at the end of the day? We've had a lot of content today, so I'm going to give each side two minutes before we begin with the rebuttal phase. Uh, the rebuttals will be four minutes for each side, beginning with a negative, but two minutes of preparation time for both sides before we begin that. Um, so, I mean, um, what's another No, you all have, have burner proof to so the Nego converge first, yes. and then you all will go. Well, that makes it perfect then, because we'll all be surprised. Okay, all right. The negative rebuttal for four minutes. Okay. So, you know, first off, there is value for consumers. Okay, I really want to iterate that. It, it's, again, it's the low-hanging fruit at the moment, and clearly in behavioral health, there are opportunities. And you say, why is that? Because you don't need the physical examination is one reason. In behavioral health, you also need, you want to, you, you could form, some people are more comfortable with more of a remote relationship, you know, in that regard. There are re fundamental reimbursement issues in behavioral health, and the fundamental issue is why people don't get behavioral health services. And then the second question is, if they do get them, why is there such a dropout rate and the vast majority of patients with behavioral health have inadequate care? Those are the fundamental issues that telehealth will not resolve. From the provider standpoint, I come back to it, is we're at 18.2% of GDP going to 19.9%. Physicians control the decision in terms of where, you know, how is a patient being treated, what drugs they get, where they're going to be treated, and the like. We need self-management. We need to increase consumer engagement. Absolutely necessary. The question is how we get there. I was a Wall Street analyst for 10 years. Hype exceeds the reality, and I think that's where we are in this regard. I support telehealth. I think it's going to make incremental inroads until we have a total cost of care approach, a value-based approach. It's going to be used on an incidental basis. Um, but they're clearly opportunities, but they have to be integrated into the process of care, and the physicians have to see the value. When you look at the consumer applications, it's cheaper. So, you know, from the insurance company standpoint, you know, they save money, right? You don't go to the ED, you don't go to the office visit, and you make money. In the grand scheme of things, you know, that's great, but it's not fundamentally changing or transforming <coughs> care delivery. And what we need to do is focus our efforts on those who need, who are the highest cost, who have the greatest needs, and it really is the concept of stepped access that we want to promote. And I think that's critical. We do have the shortage of primary care docs coming forward. Nurse practitioners are not primary care docs. Um, but again, do I have a problem? Who do I call 24-7, right? So first thing you do if you're a healthcare provider, you increase your hours. Weekends, nights, go to 6, 7 o'clock. Second thing is you have 24-7 access to a nurse. If you can't handle it, you have a doc on call. And then if you have to, you triage them appropriately. And so there are the consumer applications, but I think that's a relatively small piece of the opportunity longer term. Technology is never the solution. We need to re-engineer the processes. Now we'll have the closing rebuttal 
from the affirmative team for up to four minutes. I'll start. Thank you very much. Um, I, I think we might all agree that healthcare is the last major industry um, to be fully transformed digitally um, for good reason, right? You can't flip the healthcare system upside down overnight and have doctors doing things completely in, in a new way. Um, so we accept that. Um, but I, again, we think it's unstoppable the direction we're going in and we have to consider where we will be in 10 years. I would argue that doctors, again, will change in a positive linear direction. They will get better and better at this. But I might argue that consumers will change in an exponential direction in that, in that way. And they are going to get ahead of the curve. Uh, they want this capability. They want this power. And um, I think you can look at you know, numerous other corollaries, like we used to go and get uh, VHS uh, movies at Blockbuster, and that was a multi-billion dollar company, and suddenly overnight all of those were bankrupt and the stock is worthless. Um, I, I think to the point of this conference, uh, telehealth absolutely has a seamless uh, possibility to engage with the two of the big themes here, which is AI and blockchain. Um, AI is not a, uh, a fun thing that is a novelty. It's very, very real and it is going to empower anything that we are doing digitally. So as we take the risk and make change and, and, and start doing telehealth in bigger ways, uh, inefficiencies will come that we can't even dream of. And the blockchain is such a perfect uh, uh, opportunity for healthcare in terms of efficiencies, privacies, and enhancements um, that this will fit in seamlessly. And I think it goes beyond uh, just a trend that we will notice but something that we must get behind and uh, champion. Uh, otherwise, we will never be able to afford this expensive healthcare system that we have and help people uh, do better in terms of their health. And I'll finish our rebuttal. Uh, a, a couple of things first. That the consumer has been able to witness economic value this early is a surprise to us. Hmm. But it is also very evident to us that as it currently stands this early in the new dawn of having this kind of technology available as a supplement to the existing health system, you would expect that the consumer would see it first. That's why I think the argument stands. I agree with you that as things progress, ultimately the physician benefits. And the reason is, is because the physician now who has responsibility for all of the healthcare costs across the system would enjoy the opportunity for them or their partner to be able to influence the decision the patient makes in the middle of the night about where care is going. About the snipe at insurance companies, let me share with the audience a perspective. The cheapest form of healthcare is that which removes the burden of disease immediately. These tools are designed to shorten the cycle time between onset of symptoms and their resolution. It's not going to take care of every problem, but it may lift the burden from the rest of the health system by solving those needs, but it owns the responsibility of communicating back that capability. The second thing about insurance companies is 
Your insurance company, given the model that you're describing, given what's going to happen, we believe by 2025, 150 million Americans are going to be seeing a physician who's on a value-based contract. Your insurance company now wears a stethoscope, and they're standing in front of you. As someone who's less than two years removed uh, from a kidney transplant, uh, telehealth has very specific and real meaning for me. And so on behalf of both the conference uh, and myself, I'd like you to join me in thanking these amazing speakers for their insights today. Uh, Brent Ferram was a high school teacher within the New Jersey system, and he used to say every time his class met for the first time that the power to create change, whether it's the environment or crime or healthcare or any other issue, begins with the power of one person to persuade someone else that they have a good idea. We had lots of good ideas on the stage and a ton more in this audience. I invite you to engage in that process and that journey today. Again, thank you for coming to our session. Enjoy the rest of the conference and have a wonderful day. Thank you.